Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig, your host. I'm joined today by Austin Freeman. Austin, how are you? Doing great. Good, good. Before Austin and I really get going on something near and dear to my heart, as everybody knows, uh, I'm just going to do the quick intro housekeeping stuff. So go to thelegendarium.com. Uh, you can find our Patreon link there if you'd like to support the show. Thank you to those who already do so. Uh, you can also find a link to the Discord server. So if you enjoy this episode or other episodes that we do and you want to talk about it with thousands of other nerds like yourself in the friendliest place on the internet, check out the Discord server. So uh, we'll, we'll just we'll keep it short, okay? That's all the housekeeping I'm going to do today. Austin Freeman. You are the author of Tolkien Dogmatics, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth. So today's today's discussion is largely going to be around that, around your book, around the ideas within it, um, and and the theology inside of it. But what else would you like to tell us about yourself uh, to introduce yourself and set yourself up? Sure. So... um... My education, uh, my PhD is in systematic theology, which I think is, is pretty evident from the table of contents of the book, if any of uh, the listeners have uh, thumbed through it. Um, and uh, my interest in Tolkien started uh, pretty early in life, but in terms of academic uh, Tolkien studies, yes, that is a thing. Uh, we <laughs> really, really picked up after I finished my master's degree in, in church history at University of Edinburgh. So um, contemporaneous with my uh dissertation work. I also uh, began work on this book for Lexham Press. And that's really where I have stuck since then. So um, I'm on the faculty with uh, Houston Christian University. I actually am going to be running a a class on The Hobbit and theology um, going through this book as well. It starts at the the end of this month uh, for Houston Christian. And we uh, have a lot of other apologetics courses in in line with the sort of things we do in this book. literature, culture, things like that. That's my uh, wheelhouse. Uh, full-time, I also am a, a classical school teacher. So I, I teach rhetoric and medieval literature and all sorts of fun things. Um, get to read Beowulf and Dante and uh, other great books. Um, and so that that's my expertise is literature and theology. And uh, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. You're going to do it on J.R.R. Tolkien. So that's, that's where <laughs> the book came from. So... Um, you, you mentioned before we started that you also have done a similar thing with Lovecraft, the theology of Lovecraft, right? Yeah. So that's an edited volume that, that came out with Lexington press. Um, and so I, I did contribute a chapter on that. Um, my, my chapter in the book is actually comparing Lovecraft and Tolkien on their theories of fantasy, um, Mm. because they're exact contemporaries. Like they're born, they're born, I think six months apart from one another. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, nobody, I, I didn't realize it either because their worlds just seem so different. Uh, and and so both of them have the sort of methodological treatise that they write about how they do what they do and uh, have some very interesting overlaps and some even more interesting differences. Um, so it, it, it was a, a fun conversation comparing two extremely different thinkers. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, and I'm sure a lot of people listening are going, yeah, one was good and one was bad. <laughs> Which I'm sure it's not that simple, but uh, yeah, now they are two, shall, shall we say both of them are interesting people to, uh, to read up on. Um, I, I want to start our discussion of Tolkien's theology uh, and, and your book specifically with a, a YouTube comment. Okay. 
I'm not making this up. I got this eight hours ago on our YouTube channel. I've got a video. People should go check it out. Maybe I'll, if I remember, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but it's a, a video I did titled Why This is the Lord of the Rings Most Important Scene. And it's about, um, I, I mistakenly in the video, I call it the coronation scene because that's what it is in the movie. It's not, but it's the field of Cormallan mm-hmm. um, when the hobbits are presented to Aragorn, you know, after the kind of the climax of the story. Um, and I kind of break down why this scene is interesting from a theological perspective and how it kind of shows ca- uh, Tolkien's Catholic perception of life after death and the the whole like, well done, thou good and faithful servant moment uh, mm-hmm. waiting for you at, uh, in the afterlife. Um, so I, I've got this video, it's been up for a year or two, and I got this comment this morning, <laughs> love, but wrong. Tolkien hated allegory. So what you see is what you get. In these instances, it's the undying lands, nothing more, definitely no Christian relationship. Tut, tut, basics. <laughs> I, All right. just, I literally woke up to that. I kind of roll over, grab my phone, see about notifications. I pull that up and I... I started laughing. I laughed first thing in the morning and my wife thought I was crazy. So well, good. Venturing into the dark land of YouTube comics is always, uh, always a hit or miss. So. <laughs> I've been on YouTube so long. I'm more or less immune at this point, good, but, good. uh, but okay. Definitely no Christian relationship here. Right. So your book has no foundation. I'm sorry to tell you. Yeah. I mean, there are people that have left Amazon reviews that, that have not read the book that have said much the same thing, you know, like one star, <laughs> this guy's wrong. Um, but it obviously it, Tolkien is a, is a tier one intellectual and things are not quite so simple. Uh, they overblow this quote about Tolkien cordially disliking allegory in all its forms. And they neglect to talk about the allegories that he writes for Beowulf, the monsters and the critics or leaf by niggle, which is a, a sort of Dante-esque allegorical form the, the issue is Tolkien also has an idiosyncratic definition of what allegory is. Um, And what he certainly does not mean is that there can be multiple layers of meaning uh, to a text. What he is against is a sort of secret key method, a decoder ring method to um, writing fiction where everything only means one secret thing. And and for him, it's because that actually flattens the the hidden meaning element. Um, So Tolkien's heavily influenced by uh, earlier fantasist, George MacDonald and, um, it's a conflicting influence, but it's still influenced. And, and MacDonald talks about how there are these built-in symbolic resonances to the universe. And the way that an author crafts powerful stories is by tapping into that pre-existing well of symbolism. Uh, and if you just cut it off, right, if you draw up one little cup of water and say, well, the ring represents atomic power, then you've cut yourself off from the the, the gallons and gallons and gallons of other uh, rich meaning that you could be drawing from. Um, that's the reason Tolkien dislikes allegory. It has nothing to do with uh, with him wanting to separate his literature from his religion. Uh, in fact, he's got s- several comments to exactly the contrary from him. Um, but but I think it's a common it's a common misconception, right? That Tolkien doesn't want to create hidden meanings in Lord of the Rings, and therefore there are no hidden meanings in Lord of the Rings. Um, but Tolkien is very happy to talk about allegory versus applicability, for instance. Uh, he, he says, no, I did not intend for the ring to represent nuclear power. It, it represents the ring. Um, there, nothing more, nothing less, as your reviewer wants to say. <laughs> but in the mechanics of the story, the ring is 
something, it's an absolutely evil technological artifact. And it has a corrupting influence on the people that wield it. And so the metaphysics that spin out from that uh, are very real and very worth analyzing from, from a theological perspective. Um, you can't reduce a story to a simple plot without stripping it of, of everything that makes it powerful. I mean, subtext is what makes stories powerful. So um, it, it, to those people that believe that the project is methodologically misguided, of which there are many, um, and I think they're uh, pre, uh, preconceived ideological notions probably play a, a large role in how they read the text, as, as all of ours do. Uh, I would urge them to read the introduction where I cover all of the uh, the ob major objections and uh, talk about the methodology that I use. All right. Well, it, for people that want to pick it up, it's called Tolkien Dogmatics. Um, and l let's just start at the beginning then. I'll ask every author's favorite question, which is, what's your book about? Yeah. So the, there are a ton of books and a ton of great books talking about spiritual themes in the Lord of the Rings, for instance, or, you know, learning virtue from the hobbits, or uh, even there's an upcoming book on Tolkien's uh, spiritual life and his spiritual influences by one of my colleagues at, at Houston Christian, Holly Ordway. Um, this book, however, is the only book of its kind that, that analyzes not the theology of Lord of the Rings, but the theology of the writer of Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Mm. Tolkien. The book is about what Tolkien thought not necessarily about whether the Lord of the Rings is a Christian book or not a Christian book. So um, Tolkien's Middle Earth stories are um, significant pieces of evidence from which I draw. But what I'm trying to do is reconstruct Tolkien's mind as a theological thinker uh, who is situated in his particular context in 20th century Britain um, as an English Catholic who lived through two world wars and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, nobody has really done that. And what I found when I did the project was that Tolkien has something significant to say about pretty much every doctrine of, of a systematic theology as we would construct it. Uh, and so it's not just about, well, you know, Frodo, Gandalf, Aragorn as the, these types of Christ in the book. It, it goes a lot deeper than that when we start with Tolkien as a man and then bring Lord of the Rings into that discussion rather than starting with Lord of the Rings and trying to, to just stay within the text. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So I'm, I'm tempted to I could dive right in. I have so many questions. And yes, I know, uh, <laughs> read the book, right? But hey, this is why you're here. So I can ask you questions. Um, so let me... I have one question that I want to save for later. Let's start with the basics. If we're talking about what a theology is meant to help us understand, um, I think the most basic questions we can boil that down to are the absolute classics. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going after we die? Mm -hmm. Right? And so it you say that he has something to say about, you know, a, a whole range of theological issues, but it, could you boil it down to what, what he thought about those three questions? Yeah, absolutely. And and those three questions are actually the, the major points in his own personal theology. Um, so the doctrine of creation and sub-creation, which is a, a big theme for him, and the, the creation, where did we come from? 
what are we made to do? Uh, what are we doing here? The, the, I, the relationship of, of art to reality is another big theme for Tolkien. And where are we going? Uh, obviously, death and immortality, another uh, central concern for Tolkien's work. So uh, the, the book walks through things in that way. It starts with God and it goes from through creation all the way to eschatology and the afterlife and all sorts of stuff. So, so for Tolkien, we drill down into the doctrine of creation that really is very central for him. And it's going to inform a lot of the other answers to questions that he has. And, and we can start with this maxim that he poses in this poem, Mythopoeia, which is something that he wrote for C.S. Lewis before C.S. Lewis became a Christian. Um, he said that we're made in the image of a maker. So uh, Christian theology talks about the, the image of God, that human beings reflect God's nature in a sense that other elements of creation do not do. And for Tolkien, the way that we do that is that we make things just like God does. And in particular, we make art. We make um, paintings and sculptures and plays and, and works of fiction and uh, technologies and um, all sorts Music of Music and yeah. Uh, and, and we beautify and enrich the world that we have been placed in. And so all art, including writing for Tolkien, is a theological activity because all of it is a reflection of um, the, this inbuilt design that God has uh, has put into human beings. So for Tolkien, there is an essence of what it is uh, to be a human being. Uh, and it, it, interestingly enough, for somebody who spends all of his life writing about elves, uh, the idea of human nature is is reflected in all of these things. So the 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 hobbits, the dwarves, the orcs, the eagles, all of these are facets of this jewel of, of what human nature is. Tolkien is able to focus on and draw out. So for him, the reason why the elves are so important is because he's taken that element of human nature, the the uh, creation of art, and cranked it up uh, and, and emphasized it. And said, "What would what would uh, uh, a community look like if this were um, more central to us than it currently is?" Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I've always read the elves' um, central uh, theme as preservation. Mm. Um, but uh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm mulling. I'm I'm going to be mulling on this for a while. Well, so, <laughs> so. so he talks about this, and he he says that the elves of the third age are interested in preservation, um, and that that's actually a temptation that they face. That that for them, it's it doesn't quite get to the level of sin, but they are concerned to sort of keep their page in the ongoing story and not progress in the plot. Uh, he says, it's as if we want to, to sit down in a favorite part of your novel and never move forward again. Um, so the, the three elven rings are preserving Rivendell and Lothlorien. And, and, uh, but it, he says they're almost edging into mummification. Right. So the, the idea is the, these are things that are good and they're worth saving. But to deny the temporal aspect of reality is, for Tolkien, a very dangerous thing to do because it makes you lord of creation rather than God. So in Mythopoeia, uh, he, as you say, he talks about art being a, a theological exercise. But how do you suspect he would respond to um, art that reacts against theology or art that tries desperately to strip itself of any theology or, uh, you know, really any ideology at all. 
uh, it did, would he have come across any of that in his time? Uh, did he have any thoughts on that sort of oh, thing? Oh, yeah. It's a great question. Um, so M.H. Abrams is a literary critic and wrote, wrote an influential book called The Mirror and the Lamp. And Abrams traced uh, a change in artists' self-conception round about the time of Milton and the early Romantics, where um, previously literature was seen as a mirror. Art was seen as a mirror. You, you have God's creation and the purpose of art is to reflect the beauty that God has put forward into the human soul. Um, so it's a it's something that the artist is drawing our attention to in a particular way, glorifying and rejoicing in. Um, but around this time uh, of Milton and, and others, that the there is this sort of Promethean element that enters into art, and it actually maps into a change in the usage of the word creativity. So mm. creativity prior to that had only been applied to God. Creation was something that only God did. And now artists start applying it to themselves, the things that they're doing. Uh, and so Abrams theorizes that now, instead of a mirror that's reflecting God's glory, art becomes a lamp that the, the beauty of the artist's soul sort of shines forth out of them and illuminates the world. It's a fascinating argument that he, he charts it historically. But this is the same thing that Tolkien is struggling with. I mean, we, we don't often remember um, that when Tolkien is born, less than 10% of houses in, in the UK had electricity. And when he was dead, we had Richard Nixon and the Sex Pistols and you know landing on the moon. Like there's all sorts of stuff that Tolkien lived through in one lifetime. So the idea of did Tolkien find art that was ideologically driven or trying to just strip itself of theological moorings? Absolutely. Um, I mean that that's what most art is doing in the mainstream after World War One. Um, there there is a rejection of this old culture because it has landed us in the trenches. And so people are trying to figure out um, what's wrong and how to fix it. Now, I think anybody today would say that there, there is no neutral ground, right? There is no place where you can actually free yourself of, of your um, presuppositions and, and uh, some ideology and sort of craft a pure, objective, rational viewpoint or that, that you just can't do it. So what you end up doing is just substituting one theology for another. Uh, and Tolkien is very aware of that. And he says that, in fact, what happens often is we substitute uh, the, the theology in which God sort of sets us free to play in his world with the theology of domination, uh, where we become the God and we are attempting to remake the world in our own image. And um, if you read the, the opening myth of the Silmarillion, the Ainulindale, that's how he describes this fallen angel, the Satan figure, Melkor. That's how, what he describes him doing. Melkor's music is harsh and repetitive, and it's very loud uh, and very bold, but it does not have any depth. And I, I so apply that to, to Tolkien's view of, of modern art as well. Interesting. Um, okay. And I, I, I want to maybe come back to the Melkor point, uh, but let me ask you this then. Does Tolkien, in your reading of him uh, and your learning about him, does he have any major, um, any major temptations theologically? The things that he, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, drifted toward. And I'm thinking about what you, uh, what you and I were talking about. I mentioned uh, preservation, uh, you know, as a temptation of the Third Age elves, um, at where I could see that with Tolkien as well as you're talking about him living through 
just incredible amounts of change. I even now in the early 21st century, we can't actually comprehend what it would have been like to live through, you know, say 1900 to 1960, just wild. Um, and I, and, and so I could see how that would be a temptation for him and knowingly or not, maybe he injects that into his book and says, you know, I, yeah, I'd love to stop time, go back to our, you know, some imagined pastoral, uh, upland of history and, um, uh, and, and just live that way. But, oh, you know, you can't stop progress. You have to work with progress and, you know, maybe he's reacting to something like that. What, what do you think? Does he have any major temptations that way? I mean, he certainly feels that at multiple levels. So at the, at the macro historical level, he comments very early in his life that he believes that the breakup of Christendom with the Reformation had uh, bad effects because now people are living in different thought worlds. Um, you, you no longer know what the person next to you in the train is thinking, he says. Um, you, you no longer know what the, the hierarchies or the system of values with which they perceive their reality. Um, and on the, on the micro level, that is happening as well. I mean, Tolkien begins with a, a pretty idyllic childhood, um, barring the uh, early death of his father. Um, his mother dies when he's a teenager, and he has to go from England's green and pleasant lands into the, the factory town. And, and, and um, Birmingham, right? Yeah, even before she dies, they, they move into a, a sort of a ramshackle little place. Um, so he's got a memory of losing something um, peaceful and beautiful in his early childhood as well. And, and as he's growing up, he sees um, his beloved Oxford sort of becoming encroached upon by motor car factories and highways and all sorts of things. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think there's something there. So there's another fantasy theorist named Colin Manlow who, who died recently. And um, Manlow says that all fantasy is, is ultimately conservative because that's the whole point of saving the world, right? You have to want to save it. Um, so the, the idea is that there is something that's worth preserving from the past. And I, I think Tolkien would say that's not even a temptation. That's just a good, uh, that there, there are things that we need to preserve from the past that are quickly being lost. The question is not whether it's good to preserve them. The question is the method uh, of doing so. Mm. You're going to, to do it um, along the grain of nature uh, or whether you're going to seek to, um, to usurp a, a place that doesn't actually belong to you. Yeah. Tol Tolkien as a, as a 20th century Catholic, he, he lives through Vatican II as well. It's a major revamp to um, Catholic theology and, and Catholic church's way of relating to the world. Um, he is the basically the spiritual godson of John Henry Newman, whose theory was that doctrines grow and develop over time. Uh, so there is some sort of organic unity between the ancient church of Peter's day and the current church now. Um, even though it looks very different, there's still something that's being preserved. We've got to make sure that we're preserving it in the right way. Uh, uh, Tolkien's not a Luddite, right? He, he doesn't just bury his head in the sand and want to go back to, to uh, merry old England. He, I mean, he owned a car for a period of time. He um, used voice recorders and was an early adopter of some forms of technology. But um, it, it's not like he just hates the modern world. He doesn't. Um, but he's very nervous about how quickly we're deciding what to discard and hmm. um, what to what new things to bring forward. If I were going to talk about Tolkien's temptations, uh, I would say that 
uh, Tolkien's temptations probably stem from his situation in the Roman Catholic Church in, in that time. Now, I'm, I'm not a Catholic, um, but the, the idea that the, the Roman Catholic Church in the 20th century and beforehand had, had been facing quite a lot of uh, pressure. Right. Ever, well, ever back since the Tudors and the, the acts of succession, there cannot be a Catholic on the throne of England. I mean, it was only a generation or two before Tolkien's birth that Catholics even got the right to participate in government in the United Kingdom. Um, and so when Tolkien befriends this Ulster Protestant C.S. Lewis, uh, for instance, uh, and C.S. Lewis is, is uh, spouting off about lay theology or uh, marrying a divorcee and all these sorts of things. I think Tolkien's instinct is um, this is something that he's not comfortable with. Um, when they change the mass from being spoken in Latin to being spoken in, in the vernacular into English, Tolkien famously very loudly kept using the Latin responses in church services because he just didn't <laughs> want that to change. Um, you can just imagine so, how annoying that would be to sit next to that guy in church. <laughs> um so if we're if we're talking about a temptation, I think that's got to have something to do with it is that this almost resentfulness um, of his faith and it, it, its role in society at the time. But I mean, I've got to hand it to Tolkien like he he is very self-aware and self-reflective about his his failings. And at, at the same time that we talk about Tolkien being possibly resentful of marginalization of Catholics. He's also very ecumenical. I mean, he is good friends with C.S. Lewis, who's not a Catholic. Right. He, he is um, participating in ecumenical uh, theological groups in Oxford. Um, he, he's he's not shutting For, for those out. not aware, uh, ecumenical meaning uh, kind of universalist, yeah. uh, working with other religions for a universal Christian uh, yeah. Uh, system. Yeah. So he not universalist in the sense that all religions are the same, but in, in right. the sense that we have a common goal. Um, yeah, so he, it's a difficult question. It's one that I would need to think more about. It's like, what are, yeah. his, what are his significant temptations? That's okay. I've got more. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, in Leaf by Niggle, I'll, I'll say this one thing. In Leaf by Niggle, which may be my favorite thing of what he's written, um, Niggle is the sort of autobiographical character in the story. And he says that, because he's focusing on his art, he's neglecting his family and his neighbor and the other practical works of, of charity and mercy that he's supposed to be doing in the neighborhood. Because he's too, he, Niggle is too much focused on painting his tree. And in this sense, it's, it's Tolkien is too much focused on his imaginative world and maybe is not um, paying enough attention to the, the other calls to responsibility that are around him. Maybe that, I think maybe that's what Tolkien himself would say is that he was not a good enough husband and father. I mean, again, right. that's, that's, which I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not putting that judgment on him. I don't, I don't know, but if, well, if I were to read Niggle that way, that's what I'd say. As, as you say, he was pretty self-aware uh, mm -hmm. and self-reflective. Uh, and I, I think, you know, if you read enough biographies of Tolkien and understand enough about his life, yeah, that would be a fair charge. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, he's a man of his time in that way. Um, he, he, <laughs> Let's just say if he was an average husband and father of the time, it would look neglectful to us today, perhaps. Um, but yeah, it's it, certainly something that uh, would be fair to criticize himself with. Um, 
Oh, shoot. What was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, yeah. No, Leaf by Niggle. Um, I don't know how much we want to get into that, but you and I are very simpatico on that. It might be my favorite piece of writing he's ever done, including the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and all that. Um, it is a remarkable short story. And if anybody listening has not read it, please, please go do so. You can find free PDFs everywhere. It's in the Tolkien Reader. It's it's all over the place. Um, but episode 181 of this podcast go back and listen to episode 181 uh it's one of my favorite episodes we've ever done in part because of how good that story is so there's my there's my plug let me ask you a different question then um i want to go back to the uh the idea of art as theology Hmm. um or art vis-a-vis theology and dig into something that comes out in the Lord of the Rings, at least to me, as I read it, uh, it's, I think often of a conversation that, uh, that we have, or that the fellowship has with Galadriel when they arrive in Lothlorien and forgive me, I don't have it open in front of me. I don't have the exact wording, but they ask her how certain things work. Is this magic? And, or no, it might be Haldir. Uh, it says the elves. They have a conversation with the elves, and this, right? Are these, is, and, is, are these magic cloaks? Are these magic ropes? I'm like, I'm not really. Mad. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I don't know what you mean by magic, um, because you know we apply that term to the arts of the enemy, mm-hmm. meaning technology. Um, what we do is something very different, and it's so in my mind. There's always been this tension of of art versus technology, mm-hmm. and the way that the elves. Um, are able to achieve the things that they are is through some sort of, you know, uh, almost kind of Native American uh, oneness with the land and their ability to uh, to work with it. And they, it would be what he would call art um, and not necessarily technology. Is is there anything there? How, how did he think about art versus technology? Is technology Satan and art is God? Is you know, I mean, obviously, <laughs> then we're getting into allegory, but something along those lines. Um, so the interesting thing is, and, and Tolkien would have been very conscious of this, the Greek word for for that sort of art of, of rope making or cloak weaving or making limba spread is techne, from which we get mm-hmm. techne. So it, 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 he would use the word craft, an elvish craft, uh, which is a skill that you develop. It's a body of knowledge that you um, apprentice yourself under and that you... Um, train in. Um, and so Tolkien is situated after the rise of the arts and crafts movement in uh, the United Kingdom, people like William Morris and John Ruskin and, and other folks uh, who insist that there is no distinction between the painting of a canvas and the whittling of a spoon, for instance, that they are both forms of that both the both the arts with a capital A and crafts are forms of art, lowercase a. Um, the, we are artificially uh, splitting one from the other. And that's heavily influential to Tolkien. Um, so uh, going back to the art versus technology, uh, for him, it's, it's more about how you define those terms because a lot of technology is art. Um, like there is a, there is a design to an automobile, for instance, that can be, uh, artful. Um, there is craftsmanship that goes into the building of an engine. Um, but for Tolkien, the difference is the motive. It's not the thing itself. It's the motive for which it's being used. 
and so what the enemy wants to do with his machinery is to bulldoze and to um, reform. There, there's, a, there's an impatience with the way things are and a desire to exalt one's own vision over um, that of others, of what's already there. Uh, and art, meanwhile, is seeking to uh, supplement, to cultivate uh, what is already there in conversation with other folks, right? Notice that the elves are, are weaving this rope together. It's a community activity. Um, it's all of Galadriel's maidens that are participating in making the Limbus bread. Um, so it's more about motive than it is about substance with uh, this distinction between art and technology. And now that's a very interesting metaphysical point because unless you already have a doctrine of what the point of the world is, like what is the goal here? What is human nature? What is the, the way that things are supposed to be? Then obviously you can't make that distinction, right? You, you, can't, you can't talk about abusing or um, enhancing nature without knowing what the goal of nature is. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So here we're Another already, one I'll have to mull on. Yeah, we're already getting back into the the idea of art's relationship to theology, and the the question of whether we are being a mirror or a lamp. And with the motive thing, this is this is where allegory uh, we we turn away from allegory and in, and into applicability because the One Ring. Yeah, sure, you can read the Lord of the Rings and have the One Ring. Uh, read it as the atomic bomb and have an interesting story and think about some things that way. That's fine. But really what makes it far more personal and interesting is that we all have our own one ring. We've all picked up a one ring somewhere along the way. Uh, and the question is, uh, are we Bilbo or are we Gollum? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's our, what, how did we come across this? What did we do to acquire it? Uh, and what do we intend to do with it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why is Bilbo able to give up the ring? Well, it's because of that motivation. Um, okay, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, oh, and the other thing, gosh, you made me think of, um, I, I would have, <laughs> you know those old questions, if you could have a conversation with anybody living or dead, yeah. who would it be? Oh, it easily would be Tolkien because I've got so many questions like this. What he thought of things like, um, the uh, well allegory for lack of a better word or just the the story of the french versus the english garden hmm. um for anybody who's ever been to france uh and listeners know i lived there for a while so i've been to a lot of french gardens and it is so structured and it, it's it, they've taken nature and they've molded it into exactly what their vision is every shrub every tree is pruned and shaped um, uh, you know, made to grow a certain way, whatever. Uh, it, it's pristine and it is lovely in that pristineness because that's a word. Sure. Um, and then you go to an English garden and it's not that they don't care for it, but it does run a little more wild. They let the garden do its own thing. And then the gardener will come and help the garden to fulfill its own vision in a way. Mm -hmm. At least that's the idea behind it. Um, and uh, space for wildness. Yeah. Right. And so in that way, at least Tolkien is ultra English <laughs> and uh, uh, very stereotypically anti-French. Yes. So, there you go. Not a, not a fan of the French. <laughs> uh, okay. So back to his theology. 
This is a question that popped into my head very early in the conversation. I've been saving it for a bit. And the question is, how, if at all, did Tolkien differ from the norm at the time as a practicing Roman Catholic? Because as you say, he had some idiosyncratic views on certain things. So how was he different? It's mm, a great question. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll point out a few things. So um, in terms of his angelology, which is what it sounds like, it's the, the, the doctrine of angels. Uh, I think- And Tolkien, it's also a great metal album, by the way, if anybody needs a, a title for one. So there you go. Um, if, you, if you look at Tolkien's use of angels in his fiction, um, the, it is far more advanced than the common practices of what, we're going, what was going on at the time. Um, and in fact, it's far more closely aligned with the original biblical worldview on angels and the divine council, both in the ancient Near East and in the time of the New Testament. Um, the, this idea of this, these angelic governors that are uh, ruling over elements of society, um, at the time that Tolkien's writing, that sounds very pagan. That sounds like the, the Greek and Roman gods. People want to distance themselves from that. We, we don't want to talk about that. But uh, for Tolkien, he understands that that is, um, that is present in the, in the biblical texts, right? Paul talks about this, um, the powers and authorities in the heavenly places. So I'll, I'll point out his doctrine of angels is a lot more robust than a lot of people's. Um, I will also talk about how um, the role that he gives to angels in creation. Like many people want to talk about how, how is Tolkien a Thomist, right? There are books that are written about Tolkien and his Thomist fantasy, a couple that have come out now. Uh, I don't want to characterize Tolkien as a Thomist. Oh, can you uh, tell us what a Thomist is? A Thomist is somebody that follows Thomas Aquinas. And that's one of my pet peeves is that Thomas Aquinas wrote like a bookshelf's worth of stuff. And you got to be more specific about the thing that you're borrowing <laughs> from Thomas Aquinas. Um, so Thomas Aquinas denies a place to angels in helping ministering in the, the creation of the world. And obviously, um, at least in his fiction, uh, Tolkien plays puts a very great emphasis on that. Uh, the other point that I would uh, sort of direct us to, there is not, he does not talk very much about the Holy Spirit. Um, it is possibly present in this idea of the secret fire in Lord of the Rings. That's one of the things that Gandalf says to the Balrog. But um, again, I, I caution at the beginning of this book, we don't know all of the things that Tolkien thought. We just know what he wrote about. So right. the fact that he never wrote much about the Holy Spirit says nothing about his, his beliefs about the Holy Spirit in total, we just know he didn't write very much about the Holy Spirit. Um, and he so, wrote about the stuff that was very, very important to him. So, so the, the third thing I would say uh, is the role of death. Um, he, it, at least at certain stages of his life, at the earlier stages of his life, is much more comfortable with talking about death as a good thing. Um, in the New Testament, the, it says that death is the last enemy, which is going to be abolished uh, at the return of Christ. Um, but for Tolkien, he sees death as this escape from the, the finite world and into eternity and in, into heaven with God. And that's how he starts out. But that, in the Silmarillion, he has this idea of death as the gift of men, right? That the elves are actually envious of the human being's ability to die because then they can escape from being trapped and bounded into this world. And that all sounds very um, influenced by Plato and, and Greek philosophy and uh, not very New Testamenty. 
But um, later on in his life, he, he actually develops this view. Uh, and uh, I talk about it in the final chapter of the book that he, he ends up with a more or less orthodox New Testament view that death is an evil which is inflicted by Satan and as a result of sin, but it can be transformed into a good if you accept it with faith, right? It can become that transition point from time to eternity um, for, for a person that has faith. Um, I think those are just about the only, um, the only ways in which Tolkien either sort of departs from orthodoxy or has a, a, a unique emphasis um, that other British Catholics or other, other theologians at the time would have. Um, I mean, and, and then the things that we've already talked about, like he, the way that he uses the doctrine of creation um, and links it with art and with um, even things like science, like the, our practice of science uh, is something that is, is really interesting to me. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's unusual at the time because he's heavily influenced by certain strands of the British romantic movement. Sure. Uh, so that, that's in the water. Uh, maybe not in the theological water, um, but yeah, and depends on where you look. Yeah. Okay. Well, and if we start talking about British romanticism at the turn of the 20th century, it's that, okay, let, that's a future episode, everybody. Okay. Uh, something to look yeah. forward to. It's not nap time yet. That's why I'm not, I'm not uh, getting into it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love this stuff, but I know that it would instantly switch our podcast. Well, hey, if they read it, they would love it too. <laughs> oh, oh, there you go. Um, oh, okay. Uh, as you're writing this book, and this came out uh, late last year, no just good. so that people are aware. But so as you were writing this book uh, over the last you know months or years leading up to its publication, what surprised you? What what about Tolkien? did you not expect to learn going into the writing of the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the, I, I always have the same answer when somebody asks me this is the doctrine of revelation and mm. reading the reviews of people's books. I have noticed that this is something that often surprises them as well. Uh, and Tolkien as a Catholic has a much broader scope for revelation than, uh, you know, a Presbyterian like I would have, like he's much more open to people having dreams and visions and, and, things like that. Um, so those are all throughout his, his stories, but towards the end of his life, there, there, if you guys have read the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, and again, I would commend that book very heavily to the listeners. Um, he had, he relates an anecdote of a, a friend that comes by and he brings, uh, several different paintings and illustrations to Tolkien. And he says, did you base the, these scenes in Lord of the Rings on these paintings? Because they looked like they were Exactly. Illustrations. Yeah. Illustrations. He said, no, I've never seen those before. Um, that just sort of happened. Uh, and through conversation, the, the, the guest asked, do you, do you really think that you wrote this whole book yourself? The implication being that you had some sort of divine assistance and, and Tolkien basically says, I have never been able to assume since then that, that I did this all on my own. Um, so Tolkien seems to have come to the view that the Lord of the Rings and, and the other works of Middle Earth were a, a sort of um, gift, uh, an artistic gift that God bestowed on him um, for whatever purpose um, to, to change the world. I mean, it has changed the world. Um, not in the sense that it's like a new book of the Bible or a prophecy about something that actually happened, but that it is an, an artistic gift, a, a beautiful thing that um, God has sort of 
uh, bestowed upon the world and Tolkien was the instrument. That, that was the view that he ended up taking. And it's th that is really interesting to hear you talk about that because of Leaf by Niggle, actually. Mm. Um, one of the most beautiful things I've ever come across in any story is his... Uh, it, for, for those who haven't read it, I'm not going to recap the whole thing, but he's kind of obsessed with Niggle. The, the character of Niggle is obsessed with painting this tree, but then he has to go on his long journey, which is death, and uh, has to leave the painting behind and eventually ends up in this valley and the tree is made manifest. Mm. Uh, and he has to till and uh, work the valley and create this lovely place with the tree as the centerpiece. And that tree becomes... A sort of way station in purgatory mm -hmm. as people are on their way from one life to the next they they stop and they rest and they they take some kind of comfort in this valley that he's created and so and that is tolkien's world yeah. <laughs> that he's writing which leaf by niggle he was writing that in 19 i think it was published in 1938 uh, and he might have written it in 36 or, or 38 we don't know for all sure. one day right he says he woke up and it was in his head and he wrote it down and it was basically unchanged and and that so my point being that was before he ever got started on the lord of the rings mm -hmm. uh so man okay you're firing off all sorts of synapses and i could do this for a long time you're killing me with all this stuff so let me go to another question for you. If you, I, maybe you already are writing your next book on Tolkien, but if you do write another book on Tolkien, what direction would it go? Uh, was there anything that caught your attention that you thought, you know, I want to dig into this more, but not here, not now? Um, yeah, so the, the methodology for this book was very restricted in scope. I, I did not want to put a bunch of my opinions into it. I did not want to project insofar as possible my views. I, I wanted to keep it um, as faithfully as I could to what Tolkien himself thought and not what Austin Freeman thought. Um, so a lot of it is, I mean, it's heavily, heavily footnoted for that reason. So if people, I mean, if people disagree with my interpretation on a particular statement, they can go and decide for themselves in, in the primary sources, whether I'm presenting it accurately or not. Um, so in that sense, there are a lot of things that I want to sort of riff on um, that did, were not properly placed in that particular book. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, the the metaphor of God's relationship to the world um, as being like an author to a story, I think, is very fruitful. Um, and I, I touch upon this a little bit. We've got we did a symposium at, at Houston Christian back in November uh, called Tolkien Among the Theologians. We had a lot of really, really top notch Tolkien scholars that, that contributed. Uh, and I did Tolkien and John Calvin, uh, which, oh, yes, <laughs> might probably make a lot of people angry. But um, <laughs> one of the, that's one of the things is that Tolkien, borrowing from Thomas Aquinas, another preeminent uh, Catholic theologian from the Middle Ages, um, he's got this sort of two level causality or, or these, this hierarchy of being where uh, just as Frodo is is real in some sense, right? Like he does exist. He, he doesn't not exist, but he exists fictionally. Um, and we exist at a, at a higher level of being than Frodo does. Um, and in that same sense, God exists in a higher level of being than we do. So God is like the author to our story that, you know, there's, there's a, a deep mine of uh, things to explore there. I've touched upon that in a few of my other publications. Um, one of the chapters I have coming out is on British theological romanticism at the turn of the 20th century. 
Um, I will read this book. Yeah. So the, <laughs> I, I want to sort of construct a school of thought that includes Tolkien and Lewis and people like GK Chesterton uh, alongside some of the earlier generation, like John Ruskin and William Morris and George MacDonald to, to, to talk about um, a, a group of folks in Britain at this particular time that are really grappling with the relationship of art to society, to the individual, you know, what is the role of the human being in nature, all of those things are heavy consonances between these people. And I, I'm exploring that a lot more. It's been a very fruitful avenue of research to understanding Tolkien for me. So yeah, it's a uh, pipeline at various levels of completion. It reminds me of, um, oh gosh, now I can't remember the name of the uh, the, the political scholar who said, uh, uh, anyone, if, if you know one country, you know, no countries, hmm. the idea being, if you want to understand your own country, you have to understand another country to compare and contrast and all that stuff. And, and if you want to understand Tolkien, you can't just read Tolkien. You can't just read about Tolkien. You have to get into who was C.S. Lewis, who was Ruskin, who was Chesterton and, you know, and, uh, or Lovecraft for that matter. <laughs> there are some fruitful avenues to go down. I mean, comparing those two guys, you're going to find all sorts of differences, but that's, that's what's so weird is that both Tolkien and Lovecraft have this um, major antagonist, that, this thematic antagonist that they struggle with for their whole corpus of, of time, right? Mm. Like the human beings relationship to time and how to get outside of it. And Tolkien takes one path and it's a much more cheery path and Lovecraft takes another path and it's um, not. Less so. <laughs> so final question for you. The audience of this book, again, the book is Tolkien Dogmatics. The audience, is this meant for someone who uh, is religious, has studied theology? Uh, is this going to be over the heads of somebody uh, who isn't, as steeped in that world or is this for anybody and everybody yeah i mean it, it is for anybody I, I deliberately approached it as a, a way of bridging a gap that i see in the, the study of tolkien and his works that there there are the the people that approach it from the the english department side and then there are the people that approach it from the um faith and spirituality side uh and the the people from the english department they might not know what natural theology means and the people from the the other side, the the, the pastors and other folks, they might not be as uh, well versed in modern literary theory and how to interpret a text and th that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, the the book is number one. It is a descriptive work, right? So it is not trying to argue for anything that Tolkien said as being correct. It is just saying what Tolkien thought. So regardless of your position. Um, whether you are a Catholic or a Protestant or an atheist or a, a progressive or a conservative, if you want to know what Tolkien thought, um, I, I wrote this book for you. Um, now, obviously, people that agree with Tolkien are probably going to be edified to an extent that other people might not be. But that the, the book is a descriptive book. Secondarily, I do a lot of term defining. And so the at, at the beginning of all of the sections, if you're not familiar with, you know, what is the the Christian doctrine of the afterlife? Like I, I break that down for people. Uh, so the people that are coming to at it from the literary side or from the non-scholarly side completely um, have have a grasp on what we begin to talk about. Um, the the difference between general revelation and special revelation, for instance, you may have never heard of that. This is what that means. Um, 
So really, it's a, I designed it specifically to be a one-stop shop, a comprehensive guide and accessible from, from every angle. If you want um, one place where basically all of the things that Tolkien said about theology are, are contained. And uh, again, it's heavily footnoted, not only so that you can check me and see if you agree with me or disagree with me that this is what Tolkien thought, but because that's also an avenue for future research, like right? for other people to jump mm -hmm. off of this and say, hey, I really want to, to uh, focus on Tolkien's doctrine of, of purgatory and, and leaf by Nicola. I, I want to do more about this. So I have further reading at the end. I have a, a very extensive bibliography of other people that have talked about this. Um, if you go through the, the section on purgatory, for instance, that's pretty much everything that Tolkien has said about purgatory. You can go and read it and you can do your own work. Um, so I, I would, you know, the bias of the author is present, but I would commend it to, <laughs> to anybody and to everybody. You, you find something. If you're interested in J.R.R. Tolkien and, and what he thought and how he wrote, then you, you will find something. Perfect. It, it, this sounds like a really, really dangerous book for me because I remember coming across uh, uh, coming across Tom Shippey over mm -hmm. here on my shelf when I was 18, 17, 18, something like that. And <laughs> of course, you know, so this would have been, gosh, uh, 20 years ago. And reading it, getting to the end of the, like the end notes, I don't think it was footnoted as much as end noted. And I would get to those end notes and go, oh my gosh, who who's that? Who's, yeah. you know, who wrote that? Oh my gosh, I got to get that book. Pretty soon my shelf was groaning with all this stuff. And uh, it, so your book might do yeah. similar things to me because I've, I've taken about a decade off. Yeah. What's that? Um, unfortunately, I have gotten some of those reports from people that have purchased them. So, <laughs> so uh, but you know what? It's a, a danger that I'm willing to wade into. Uh, you know, Gandalf, which way is Mordor? You know, uh, turn left and just go by Tolkien Dogmatics. That's the book. Tolkien Dogmatics. Uh, you can find it, well, anywhere books are sold. Hopefully Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those places. Absolutely. Um, so Austin Freeman, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and be careful because you're going to get some more emails from me wanting to have more discussions like this. Great. Glad this, to do it. This is my kind of jam. So thanks again. And thanks to everybody for listening. We appreciate that. And uh, obviously the legendarium.com, like I said at the beginning, is where we want you to go to check out past episodes, uh, to check out the links to Discord, Patreon, all that stuff. But for now, I will see you all next time. 